My name's Steve, and uh, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, David, our minister, our lead minister, has the week off. I'm feeding back here, so it's coming. It's coming. I'm a little hot. Hot mic. Hot mic. Hot mic. Check, check, check one. Uh, but he is amped up and ready for next week, as I hope you are, because next week is Easter Sunday. It is the Super Bowl of the Christian year. Buckle up. Wear your favorite uh, Easter egg jersey. I don't know how that works out. But we hope if you are here, you'll be able to join us. Service starts at the regular time at 11 o'clock. It's going to be a great opportunity for us to celebrate the preeminent event in human history the resurrection of Jesus. And we do that every week as we come together, but this is the one Sunday we focus on that. So please, if you're in town, join us for that. That's exciting. What we're doing today, however, is that we're wrapping up a short series that we have been doing in the book of Jonah. And um, the theme of what we've talked about with the book of Jonah is that the book of Jonah, this Old Testament prophecy that most of us know about this dude who ended up in the belly of the fish, but we try to explore the entire story. And the theme that's over and over again within the book is that it is filled with unexpected turns. And we talked about this within our lives, right? Many of us had a life trajectory or we continue to have these plans that we internalize, but they never work out exactly how we want unexpected things happen and when that happens what then happens to our view of God and faith in our lives do we allow it to go awry or do we trust that in the midst of unexpected turns there is one who knows more than we do and that's the Lord so if you've not been with us throughout this part uh, throughout this series we've split it up and the book of Jonah is just four chapters long. It's a short story and it starts off with God calling Jonah to go talk to one of the most ruthless empires who have ever lived, the Assyrians, specifically the capital of Nineveh. And the first thing that Jonah does in that is he's disgusted with the call of God and he runs away. And instead of taking his land path, he goes on a boat the other way. He's trying to go to the other side of the world and in the midst of him taking a boat, there's a storm And that's what leads us to chapter 2. Jonah is partially digested, I guess you could say. He ends up in the belly of a fish. And it's there when he has his come to God moment where he says, maybe I should have listened to him. And we got to where we were last week in delivery that Jonah actually delivered the message. And God delivered the people of Nineveh when they repented. And what we're going to get to this week, which is very interesting, is disappointment. Disappointment. Why would there be disappointment at this? And we're going to see what I think is one of the most transparent stories in all of the Bible. But just to recap where we left things last week, Jonah preached a message to the Ninevites saying, repent. And we see what happens. God saw how the people of Nineveh repented. They turned from their evil ways and God had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened to them. So it was a transformative story right here. And in most stories, it just would have ended there at the high note, right? But we have a postscript, and that's where we'll be today. If you have a blue Bible from our pews, we are on page 655. If you have a Bible on your phone, what is such sorcery? I would say that you can just find your way there itself. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Eric's going to read for us today. And Eric, as we get into the story of Jonah, as we conclude it, will you read verses 1 through 4, please, of Jonah 4? 1 through 4. 
But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? So this is what's interesting about the message that God gives to us. It's a transformative message, right? The reason that you're here, the reason that we talk about these things of faith is you know where you've been at, where you were, or maybe where you're currently at, and through the working of God through his grace, your life today is different as a result. It's this transformational arc. We talked at the end of our message last week. We summarized it with these words from Jesus from Luke chapter 15, where Jesus says there's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. And what's interesting about this story is we know that it was hundreds of thousands of people who saw what God could do within their lives, gave up their previous life, moved to him, and you would think that a prophet, a messenger of God, somebody who is neck deep in what the Lord is doing would be enthused at the idea that God actually saved that many people. I mean, if you've ever been to a big Christian gathering, you know, sometimes there's this point of your like, or, you know, like you wonder what's real, what's fake. But can you imagine just being in a place where just hundreds of thousands of people all said, I'm going to let Jesus transform my life. That would be exciting. Jonah, the prophet, is pissed. He does not like this. This is what I like about the story of this too. Jonah even gives this. He's like, hey God, by the way, when you told me to go on this message, which we read in Jonah chapter one, when you told me to go take this message to these people, the reason I fled to the other side of the world is I knew how you are. I love this. He goes, the reason that I didn't want to do the mission is because I knew how you are, because I knew that if I went and preached to these people and they repented, you would actually save them instead of smiting them. And that's why Jonah is pissed. Don't you love it? At least he understands something about God. And this is the thing I really love about it, is because Jonah has the audacity to quote God to God. Because in Exodus chapter 34, which is what we see here in this quote that Jonah gives to the Lord, he's like, hey, remember when you said this about you? And this is what's interesting. This happens in the book of Exodus. And God says, this is who I am. This is my nature. He said that I am the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Jonah said, that's who you said you are. I believe that you are who you said you are. And that's why I didn't want these people to get a hold of it, because I knew once they got a hold of it, you would forgive those sinners. So that's why Jonah was ticked throughout the whole time. I love this right here too, because it's to the point where he's just like, just kill me. Just like, let's just end it all. Like, I knew that you were a great God, and I just didn't want you to be that good to these people. You can be good to all sorts of people, just not these people. Now, if you've missed this part of the study with us, it's important for us to see this about what Jonah's experienced. And we talked about this earlier. Again, the Ninevites, who were part of the Assyrian Empire, were some of the most wicked people who ever lived. 
And this isn't just like biblical speak. This is historians who have seen this. When they went into countries, they raped, they pillaged, and not only that, they abused bodies to make sure that everybody knew how horrible they were. The reputation preceded them. So when you're Jonah, and when you're looking at this, do you see maybe why he didn't want them to repent? Why doesn't he want them to repent? Because he knows that they need to be held accountable for who they are. And this is the toughest thing that you and I, I think, have to deal with with faith. This is a point I found over 20 plus years of theological study that people really wrestle with. It's the paradoxical nature of God. And it's not a pair of ducks. It's a paradox. Which means it's two things that seem to be competing against each other. That cannot exist at the same time. And what we have here is Jonah wrestling with something that you and I have too. And it's issues of justice and mercy and grace. And we referenced this in previous weeks, but we're really going to hone in on this because this is Jonah's internal quandary. When you look around the world and see that sometimes evil people are having their way, or you're seeing places where people that are good aren't receiving the grace that you think you're due, you you start to question even God himself. There's a theologian named J.D.W. Watts, and he expressed it as that the... uh, missed the rest of the quote. He expressed it as, there's a tension between belief in a God of justice and a God of grace. And usually, friends, we find ourselves leaning to either side dependent upon where we are in the situation. Our ability to judge this is highly subjective. Isn't it true? And we mentioned this last week. When I'm speeding down the road, I want to make sure that the cop exhibits an attitude of grace. When it's somebody else who's flying past me in the flash lane, I want to see his justice enacted upon the perpetrator. And this is difficult for us to see because we don't have the ability to see everything. God can operate within this, but this is where Jonah is stuck. Jonah is like, these people deserve judgment. And God, I know you're a God of grace and you're going to let them off the hook. And he's just like, you know what? It would be better for me to die. And this is the question right there in verse four that I think is very important. God says, Jonah, do you really have right to be angry? Eric, will you do me a favor? Go ahead and read verses five through eight as we explore this further. Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. It's an interesting story. There's a um, theologian, his name's Ray Backey, and he's just like, he pictures Jonah on this hill overlooking the city. And as he's sitting there, it's like he's doing his daily devotions. And he's looking over the city, and it's like he's reading Genesis 19 about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's ready for some good, like, sulfur smiting that's going to come in and just destroy the city of Nineveh. And yet he is not happy at what is happening right here, Right? Jonah wants the judgment of God on the Ninevites, even though he was the messenger, asking them to repent, and he is very much disappointed within the process. And here we have then 
in the midst of all this, Jonah channels his inner boy scout and he's like, not only am I just going to sit here, but I'm going to make myself like a little hut to make sure that I have a good place to see the end of these people. So again, he builds this shelter and in the midst of making this shelter though, there's, you know, something that's lacking because he doesn't necessarily have the appropriate roofing. So there's a vine uh, apparently there that grows up and covers it. So it's like this, you know, very organic place where he gets to hang out. You know, it's, it, it, it's very like hip and elegant, right? He's got this, he's got this walled thing. He's got this natural vine thing working out. Maybe there's some, you know, grapes there you can pop in. Like he's, he's, he's got a decent situation that's going around here. But the problem then is that in the midst of his shelter a worm appears which is just again this is great biblical writing right like you know the, then of all the different characters within this story right at the end we get a worm and I don't know if you've seen you know we've seen worms or even caterpillars and stuff like that but apparently this one has like a buffet penchant within him to the extent that he begins to eat away all aspects of the vine to the, to the point that Jonah's pissed yet again, this time not just because the Ninevites are smited, but because now his vine is gone and the sun is beating on his head and, and he's just in a miserable state. To the extent that once again, he hits this point of like suicidal thoughts where he's like, okay, now it's really bad. Like I was pissed when God didn't go ahead and smite the people I want to. And now the sun's beating on my head. Like I want nothing to do with this at all. Let's just end this all now. You know, he's not smiting people. He, I'm getting a sunburn. It's just horrible. Let's just call it a day. Now this is what's interesting right here. Something that we don't see necessarily within the English translation, but in verse 6. And I don't know if you have your blue Bible with you, but there's something interesting that the NIV Bible, at least, and some other translations does this. Does this. In verse 6, it says, Then the Lord God. Because you're like, okay, then it's just God. But it's no, it's the Lord God. And notice here that there's a capitalization to Lord God. And this is something that translators do specifically within the Bible to try to distinguish the original words for what's happening here. Every point in the book of Jonah up to this instance there's no Lord God, it's just God. In the Hebrew, there's different words for God. This is the word Elohim. Um, by the way, in the Old Testament, whenever you see people with Hebrew names and they have L at the end of their name, like Daniel, that L is supposed to be representative of Elohim. And it's such a generic term for God. It, it occurs previously in the book. We see in uh, chapter 3, verse 5, the Ninevites believed God, that's God, Elohim. And they declared a fast. In verse 8 here, said, let the man beast be covered sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on Elohim. God, I think I have another one in verse 10. When Elohim, God saw what they did and how they turned from their ways, he had compassion on them. Every point in the book of Jonah up to right here in chapter 4, we see this word used. But at the beginning of verse 6 right here, it's a conjunction. It's Yahweh Elohim. I don't know if you know about that word Yahweh. Sometimes I go into studies on that work. It's Y-H-W-H basically in the Hebrew. And we don't even know if it's pronounced Yahweh because the Jewish scribes so honored this name of God because the scripture says do not profane the name of God that they wouldn't even write down their traditional vowel markers later. We don't even know if it's Yahweh or, or, or however the exact pronunciation of it is. It is deemed as so holy. I took a, a, a class one time 
where a Presbyterian, <laughs> there was a rabbinical, like a, a Orthodox Jew in the class and a uh, Presbyterian kind of a loose scholar. And she wrote like the words Yahweh in Hebrew and the Jewish person in the class was like, now you can never erase that ever. Like, it's like, well, I can because it's on marker board. They're like, no, 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 no. That's the name of God. Scribes, when they would come across this name and they were having to destroy old Torah scrolls, would always cut it out and treat that with special reverence. So the inclusion right here is important. And notice it happens in verse 6. Because it says, when Yahweh Elohim, when the Lord God did this, and I'm offering you that at this point, at the very end of the book, there's a shift. You know how we've been talking for weeks that there's unexpected turns within Jonah? This is subtle, but this is an unexpected turn. And I'll offer you that this is actually a transformation. Because what happens at this point right here in verse 6, when God gets involved in this, and you might think it's just ridiculous, where God provided. Right here when God provided, there's a provision from God, but there's a transformation here. We think that this whole book is about the Ninevites, right? Them evil, evil people that need the Lord. But really what happens right here is Jonah embodies everything for the Ninevites. I want you to see the journey of Jonah within this book because it's interesting because it parallels that of the people of Nineveh. The first thing that happens, that impending doom is happening. The Ninevites had impending doom. God said, you better preach to them to change their evil ways or otherwise smited. Jonah was in the belly of a fish. And in bellies, things get digested. He faced impending doom. But after that, there was a staving off of the doom, right? After Jonah walked through the streets and preached repentance, the people repented. And therefore, it was eliminated. And similarly, when Jonah was finally in the belly of the fish, and he said, okay, Lord, I'll go, I'll go, I get the point, I'll go, that the doom was eliminated to the point that it was completely averted. And there was salvation. So what you have to see right here is what's happening within the book, is that the people to whom Jonah preached to had actually become himself. He had taken on who they were. And friends, as we continue to talk about this within our spiritual lives, I think we need to continue to grapple with what that means to you and to me. Specifically the idea that we are in the business of looking at other people and their relationship with God, and we want to have comments on that. But the reality is, is how much are we looking in the mirror and asking ourselves where we are at relationally? As much as we want the Lord to strike down the aggressors, how much at times do we deserve that same punishment? It's great to read this in the book, right? It's great to read the book of Jonah because we're allowed to see it from afar. I love Jonah at this point because he's just like, kill me, God. First you saved those people. Now I'm getting a sunburn. Life sucks. Let's read this, Eric, as we uh, continue what happens. I think we're just verse 9 right here. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, he replied, it is right. I'm angry enough to die. This is a great conversation between Jonah and God. Jonah's just like, look, sun, sun's bad. 
You know, this is predating SPF levels that they understood, right? So maybe in a way, I guess he was right, you know, you know, melanoma is a thing. But I think he's speaking to the larger thing, don't, don't you? I, as much as I want to believe that Jonah was just really pale and afraid about his exposure to the sun, I think it transcended that to the point that he is just saying, no, the whole situation is just a disaster. God, you failed, you messed up. And think about this as a question. You have the chance to interact with the Lord God, creator of the universe, and God's like, hey, buddy, should you be angry about this? You know, I, I don't know if like there is inflection when God talked to prophets or if it was like, you, you know, like Stephen Hawking, do you have a right to be angry about this? I think there was inflection. I think there was like, hey, man, is that worth getting angry about? And I love his response. Hell yeah, right? Like, he's, this is the worst. This is horrible. I have every right to be angry. You know, the development and the enlightenment of social contract theory brought us to the point that people started to believe in inalienable rights, right? We know this from Thomas Jefferson in the Constitution. How it, it, it's like, look, to be a human being, you have certain rights that are due to you, that it is your freedom to experience And here's Jonah telling the God of the universe, I have the right to be angry with you. I'm telling you, the the cojones on this guy is just massive. Like, I'm just saying, you have to respect the guy who tells the God of the universe, I can be angry with you. Can I pause parenthetically right here? Because I think it's something that theologically works out. There is such a thing as righteous anger. There is such a thing that when evil abounds, that we have the right to be angry. Okay, so, so by the way, this is, this is seen in the book of Genesis, where we have the illustration of Abraham wrestling with God. The rabbis said, this is actually a metaphor for what it means to go with God. Because sometimes God's shoulders are broad enough. If you've had an experience in your life where you've asked why God, it doesn't mean then that you've sinned and asking him why. Really within this, I'm not sure that Jonah transgressed the level of sin against God by saying, I have the right to be angry. It was his emotion. It was his feeling, right? Like God understands who we are. We are emotional beings and therefore we have the right to express anger. Because think about it. If it was the sin, God's just like, you know, is it angry? Like verse 10 would be and smited, right? But Jonah continues on with this. I'm telling you, I think there's the breadth for you and I to be angry. The problem that happens today is that we've taken anger to an art form. And yeah, I would say that probably the best expression of that has become social media, right? Like I've seen just so much anger on the interwebs with people posting about things, whether it be politicians or sports you know, athletes, right? Or, or, or even, you know, just like, I, I love the wonderful, veiled, cryptic, you know, like Facebook message where somebody's like, I'm just so angry at them right now, you know, like, and they just post that. It's like, what are you supposed to do that? You know, like, who is them? You know, it's like you're bringing, because I'm just so angry. Friends, we have perfected anger as an art form. Now, here's the thing. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Like, when you're angry, It's not the worst thing. But the Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4. Is that in your anger, do not sin. Notice that he doesn't say that when you're angry, you're a sinner. No. It's saying that if you reach the point of anger, are you hitting the point to where it's moving into sin? You know, this world is a great place. It's a great place where you want to live. The thing that makes it more difficult is people, right? Right? 
Like you're like, if I could just eliminate people from the equation, I could be a good Christian. It's actually, by the way, the response of people who lived in the third and fourth century after Jesus. They were desert ascetics. They, they, they actually felt this. They're like, you know what? We, we can live better spiritual lives if we just move out into the wilderness and stay away from people and that will help keep us whole. But friends, that's not, it's not realistic and it's not what we are called to do. We're called to live among each other. And therefore, you're going to get angry. Maybe you're going to get angry with your spouse or with your child or with your parent. You're going to get angry with close friends that you have. You're going to get angry with with people that you've never even met before that are driving on the interstate, right? We are going to have to deal with anger. But the issue is, does that anger lead you to sin? And this is what's happened with Jonah. You can understand his internal process, right? Like these people that you had me preach to are the worst people who have ever lived. I'm angry with them, but his anger has become vengeance and God is trying to allow him to see this. So, Eric, as we get to the conclusion of this book here, let's really examine then where God tries to take Jonah within his anger and how he tries to get him to see something differently. Eric, read verses 10 and 11 for us. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow It appeared in a night and perished in a night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? Is that the very last verse? Is that how your verse ends it? Okay, yeah. Just want to throw at the end of the NIV here, because that ends with this one. Just with a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So what God has to tell his prophet is, is like, look, you are like angry to the point where you're like, just kill me, God. My vine is gone. And God's like, hey, by the way, how much cultivating did you have to do with this vine? Are you a botanist? Did you develop and, and curate it? Did you make sure that it was pruned and stuff? You know, did, what was your level of involvement in there? And again, it's that whole thing is that even if Jonah was a botanist, does he really control the process of photosynthesis to the extent that he can make something grow? Like Jonah had no involvement in there. So God's like, so let's, let's, let's pan out here, Jonah. Let's see the big picture. What was your involvement in this vine here? There was nothing. Squat, diddly. I gave you the vine. And even though you thought you might deserve it, you know, what we're seeing throughout the birth of the book is that, you know, your attitude really projects that you didn't deserve it, but that's cool. I gave you this vine. But here's the thing about that, is that I gave you the vine because I actually cared about you. you know, God's like, I, I, I cared about this little thing in your life. That's the great thing about the providence of God, isn't it? Like we find ways to be angry with, God, with what God does, but we don't just look at the little bitty things that happens every single day. And, and we just reject it because of all the crap that's out there that is bringing us down. I did my ceremonial walk up the street today coming to church you know we live right down the street and i'm walking up and there's these just little cute tulips just boop, 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 boop. you know they weren't there a week ago they're there now and framed behind this church in which we're meeting with is this blue sky and these little colorful tulips and i'm just like that's swell it made me happy and I don't know if I would have noticed it if I wasn't preaching on this today because there's this point when it comes down to is that we so many times just overlook the little things that God does in your life. Just do me a favor when you're leaving today, 
You know, if you were in your car, if you bike over like suited, or if you walk, whatever, you know, just, just, just look around. Now, if you're driving, you know, keep your eyes on the road at some point. But just look around and just say, look at just the beauty that I have on this great spring day. We're emerging from, from this winter doldrum, which literally we had an easy winter, but we won't tell Jesus about that. We're emerging from this. We see life coming out. It's supposed to be happy. It's the little things. In the midst of his anger, Jonah can't even appreciate this little thing. And God's like, okay, look. So you lost this little thing, and now you're suicidal. Okay, if, if there's this little thing that you had nothing to do that you have the right to be mad about, let's look at Nineveh. Let's shift our eyes and look over here. 120,000. You know, Cincinnati and city limits is 300,000, let alone like the 2.2 in the metropolitan area. But 120,000 for a city in the ancient Near East, massive. Huge. It's probably one of the greatest uh, collaborations of people at any point in that time. Like, just tons of people. God's like, what about those people down there in the valley? Should I care for them? It's interesting too, though. So he goes over here. He's like, he's like, oh, I'm about these people. They don't know their right from their left. Like, God is kind of implying right there they are stupid, you know? Don't we usually judge people? Like, you know, sometimes we judge them despite their ignorance. I think it's the hardest thing I have to do because, you know, you, you want to go out and you want to just say, that's a horrible, horrible person, but then you don't know anything about their lives that they've led, right? Like, as much as we all have up and down in our lives, nobody has it perfect, but there's always somebody who's had it worse than you and I. It's sometimes difficult for us to judge them within their ignorance. What God is trying to say is that, look, these people who are the most barbaric people, there's an ignorance that led them to do this. Their structure of living was based upon brutality and submission, And they thought that they became gods when they dominated the rest of the world. And in Jonah's preaching, they actually came to know the God of the universe. So God's like, look, you know, you're judging all these people. They are ignorant. Doesn't mean they're without sin, but that ignorance has something to play into it. This is my absolute favorite. It's my absolute favorite part of the book right here. So he says, shouldn't I care about you know, these 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left hand and many cattle as well. I don't know if you caught that. There's the types of things we just, he's like, and cows. Seems a little out of place, doesn't it? It's like, hey, I care about these ignorant people and their cattle. In the ancient Near East, cattle were a sign of economic stability and wealth. And there's something very interesting within this. So it's not like God is just like, I, you know, it's not this, the beginning of the Hindi religion where he just, you know, idolizes cows. It's not about that. It's about this idea that not only do I care about the people spiritually, but I care about their current situation in life. I care about their economy. I care about how they live day to day. I think that's a very powerful thing because so many times those of us who are spiritual like to downplay the long-term trajectory of somebody in the world today. We're like, hey, here's people in great need. Let's just tell them about Jesus and then they'll have everything they need. And even though the rest of their life is the suck, you know, they'll, they'll figure it out. No, God cares about where we are in the here and now. He cares about who we are and how we live in the day. And God's like, look, I even care about their economy. I care about how that all works itself. And and, and that's why I like in the NIV, it ends with this. Shouldn't I care about this great city? And this is what's great about this entire book. Think about the journey that has happened right here. Jonah goes from reluctant prophet to kind of still reluctantly obedient prophet to preaching a transformative message. And at the end of this book, he's a punk. Is he not? 
He's a punk. And God, it doesn't end with Jonah talking. It just ends with a question. Shouldn't I care about this great city? And by the way, as much as I love this book because we get this biblical character who just sucks at every turn. So you're like, hey, at least today I was better than Jonah. But here's the thing about this. This is what I love about this book. We wouldn't know about this story if Jonah hadn't shared it, right? Like all this could have happened and Jonah might have been like, okay, I'm not telling anybody about this. Like, I don't want anybody to know because this does not paint me in a good light. We have the story. So at some point we're assuming that Jonah actually realized what a tool he was, right? There's this point of realization. But here's the point of realization for me and you within the story of Jonah. This is important. This story is not about the Ninevites. This story isn't about Jonah. The story's about us. That's the question that's left. The question left for us is, what does this mean to you and I? What does all of this mean to you and I? And I would offer, it just comes down to us being, uh, finding comfort within that paradoxical thought. The discrepancy of justice versus the consistency of grace. The discrepancy of justice versus the, the, the consistency of grace. Because again, when we're looking at justice... People who do wrong being held accountable for that, we want it to be evident to us because that sometimes frames how we look at God, right? When bad people get away with it, we just start to say, hey God, what are you doing here? One of the things that emerged from the 20th century, right, is just the brutality of World War II, specifically within the actions of the Nazis, and there were some people for the longest time got away from it. And they got an even, you know, the, the end of... Hitler at that point was such a letdown for many people because was he really ever held accountable for all the atrocities that he permitted to happen? Scriptures speak to this in Proverbs chapter 22, verses 20, verse 2. So this is Old Testament, right? It says, the rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is maker of them all. So what it's saying is that regardless of who you are, where you're at, you are under the umbrella of the reign of God. Right? So even if somebody wants to reject what the Lord is doing, it does not negate the fact that he is their father and they are his child. All things considered, we're all equal. Similarly, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 45 is he allows us to see this because even hundreds of years later, as the people in Jesus' day were trying to say, hey, what is going on in the world? Because the the religious leaders in Jesus' time had such a regimented view of existence that they said if somebody is, you know, in a bad situation, if, if they have some debilitating disease or something, it's because there's some sort of sin that set this up. And what Jesus is saying is like, look, the sun rises on both the evil the good god sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous and sometimes people who need justice will escape it and that doesn't mean that god is just on a siesta it just shows the reality of the world friends sometimes the good are punished sometimes the wicked prosper so for us to try to extract some sort of thing out of that negates the second part of what we're talking about. There's a discrepancy in justice that we will never be satisfied. You know why it won't be satisfied? Because you can't see the bigger picture, right? I was thinking about this just the other week because, you know, I'm an ordained minister. I just, you know, it's just the older you get, the more that you've seen things. Friends, uh, when you're in ministry, like, 
people will admit to you the most grievous of sins. Like, I am beyond a state of shock when somebody says, hey, Steve, can we talk about something? And I'm like, okay, buckle up, what can it be? And I have had people admit to me the whole pantheon of sins to the extent that I am no longer surprised what somebody is capable of doing. You know what's interesting about that too? It's always after I develop a relationship with somebody. So I'm like, wow, that person's really swell. And then you find out that they've done something just so despicable if people found out their lives would be ruined. And then I look in the mirror and I realize that I am capable, or if I'm not, I've actually committed things that are just as egregious. So there's those times where I thank God there's a discrepancy of justice because my feeble human mind is unable to take in all of the information to see how it should be delivered. Like of all the jobs I would ever want, I wouldn't want to have the smite button in front of me because I know I'm not capable of that. And that's why it's important for you and I to understand the consistency of God's grace. See, because even though we might find discrepancy within justice, his grace is consistent. Consistent, And that's what we see in this book. It was consistent to Jonah. It was consistent to the Ninevites. And for you and me, it's consistent too. And we should be thankful for that. Paul, the apostle, wrote in Romans chapter 3. This is a long one because I said 310 here, but I think it goes longer. Maybe I'm wrong. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. They, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and there is a way of peace that they do not know. There's no one who fears God before his eyes. It's funny because if you're like churchy people, like if you've ever been here, you know this point because it was part of the Roman road, right? Roman road, anyone? Geeks unite? Maybe not? Okay. There's no one righteous, not even one. You're like, oh, that's it. And then you start to look at the list and you're like, holy crap, that's like intense. That's insane. There's a lot going on right there. And what's that saying, by the way, is that this nice list here about throats being open graves, tongues practicing deceit, poison vipers, your feet are going off to kill people. That's, that's all of us. Paul's like, by the way, you all suck. And then Paul raises his hand. He says, I'm the worst. Get in line. This is the thing, friends, is that despite all of this, God says, I forgive you. The Lord says, whatever you commit in the past can be forgotten. Jesus says, bring your burdens to me. I'll take those sins on my back. And he did. And this is a week we can start to think about that, right? Because we are uh, what is known in, in Christian movement as Passion Week. The Passion is the moving of Christ from his position toward the cross. Today's Palm Sunday. In Palm Sunday, one week before Jesus, it was every week he was crucified, one week before he rose again, Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Not a valiant horse, a steed, but a lowly, lowly donkey. And it's very interesting that we're talking about wrapping up Jonah this week. And I think about this. Is think about this. At the end of chapter four of Jonah, where's Jonah? Jonah has left the city right? He went in to change the city. He just leaves. He's up on a hill. He's got his makeshift uh, tent and he's waiting for somebody to be smited, right? He's holding on. 
What's Jesus doing? Jesus is just like, I'm going into the city. I know the city. I, I, I know that this entry into the city will mean my very death, but I'm going to go in because this is what I'm called to do. And very interesting, the end of the story where it's like, hey, Jonah, don't you even care about 120,000 people? Don't you care that they're ignorant? Don't you care that they're, you know, that, you know they're, they're very economic, their, their, their lives are at stake? Don't you care about that? And this week, Jesus also, he goes into the city on a Sunday. He comes back out. And on a hill across the valley from Jerusalem, he's staring at the city, just the way that Jonah is staring at Nineveh. And whereas Jonah was pissed because he's like, I wanted some destruction. Jesus looks at the very city that will kill him. And Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish I could gather you, bring you together, embrace you like a mother hen does to her chicks. That's this perspective of love that exemplifies the consistency of grace. So for you and I, friends, we need to look at this story as a challenge for us. Think about it. Am I obsessed with justice on others or am I on my knees thanking the Lord for the forgiveness that he provides? That's something powerful that you can think of as we move our worship to the cross, and to the resurrection. And as we do every week, we look at the cross this morning. We have a chance every week here as a church to partake of communion. What communion does is it reminds us of the cross. It reminds us, friends, that you and I do not deserve a grace so consistent. We deserve a justice that God forgives. And that's why this powerful moment is something that we remember every week. As Jesus told us to remember, we remember today. And that's how we're going to close our time in worship today. So we invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to uh, pray. And then we are going to pass around these trays for a communion. Piece of bread, some grape juice. Means so much more than what it is. We're going to consume it because Jesus told us to do that. And uh, if you're a follower of him, we invite you to take a piece of bread, take a cup when you're ready consume that and let's just remember this grace that we have that's so powerful you and i don't deserve but jesus gives us anyway i'm going to pray and then we'll commune heavenly father we thank you we thank you for the stories of jonah this old testament story father when we think that in the old testament you were you, you were just angry and you were just enacting wrath upon people. But what we see right here is you extending your grace to unnatural levels. That Father, here, you took the worst people who have ever lived and brought them to repentance. And where I'm encouraged, and I hope that we as a church are encouraged, Father, is that you do that for us every week. Every day, every minute of our lives, you extend to us a grace that's far more consistent than anything we deserve. So we ask that we identify with the plight of Jonah. Instead of judging him for where he's fallen short, 
You help us to see where we do that in this way. Help us to extend grace to those around us because that's what you have extended to us. Help us during this time, Father, as we remember the cross to really hone in on you who provided a way out. Through the death of your son, you make us new. You make all things new. And that's why we remember and celebrate a tragic moment. We remember the cross that changes everything. So as we partake this morning, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, help us to remember your amazing grace. Thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.